0: Okay, so today's Bible reading is from Matthew. Um, we're reading chapter 4 verse 23 through to chapter 5 verse 12. Um, if you want to follow along in the Bibles, it's on page 1505. Sorry. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralysed and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you.
1: Thanks, Heather. And good morning, everyone. If we haven't met before, my name's Carl. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church only, and it's lovely to have you here with us today, especially kind of in the run-up to Christmas uh, and with the cricket on in Adelaide. I know that uh, many of you are busy at the moment with lots of other things to do. So thank you for being with us this morning. Today, we're, we're going back to the book of Matthew. We've been working our way through Matthew over the course of the year. A few weeks back, Paul Harrington, the senior network pastor, was here with us, and he was teaching from Matthew's, Matthew chapter 6 and chapter 7. That's the back part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 together. And we're really going to slow down as a church and we're just going to be looking at 12 verses together over the next three weeks. These 12 verses are part of the world's most famous sermon. And these 12 verses are probably the most famous bit of that most famous sermon. You might have heard of the term the Beatitudes before. That's what these uh, these uh, verses are sometimes called, the Beatitudes. You might be wondering why they're called that. Uh, Simply, it's that that word blessed that comes up so often in these verses. In Latin, the word for blessed is beatus, and so from that we get the word beatitude. But before we get to the beatitudes, before we get to chapter 5, I want us to go back and just be reminded of the context into which these words come. You might remember that Matthew's Gospel starts with a, a genealogy, if you've ever read it, it's got All those long and confusing names at the start of it. And it's there with one particular purpose. It's there that we might see Jesus' family tree and clearly see that he is God's chosen king. Then we get to Matthew chapter 2 and we read about the Magi who are looking for baby Jesus. Why? Why? Why are they looking for Jesus? Because they're searching for God's promised king. In chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel, we see John the Baptist preparing the way for God's king with these great words from Isaiah. John repeats the words of Isaiah. He says, "A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him." Do you remember these words from when we were looking at Isaiah as a church? Remember in Isaiah 40, these are words of great comfort. These are words used to describe what's going to happen when the people return from exile and God will return to be with his people as their king. And then in chapter 4, Jesus begins his preaching and his teaching ministry. If you've got your Bibles open, I'd love you to open them with me to Matthew chapter 4. Have a look. Uh, where it says in verse 17 with me, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. See, in these opening verses, these opening chapters of Matthew's gospel, you can't miss, can you, the royal and the kingly themes that are kind of steeped right through here. Matthew, the writer, he wants us to know beyond a doubt that Jesus is God's promised and sought-after king. And he wants us to yearn to be part of Jesus' kingdom. And he also, I think, shows us that to be part of the kingdom means that we would repent. So the kingdom of heaven, it's obviously an important term in the book of Matthew. We've seen it come up so many times already. So a question for you this morning is, what is the kingdom of heaven? What do you think it means? We know that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. That's fairly easy to see. But what does the kingdom of heaven mean? In Matthew chapter 28, that's right at the very end of the gospel, Jesus says these things. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has all authority as the king of the kingdom. So in a sense, the kingdom of heaven, the reach of Jesus, his rule and his reign, well, it encompasses all things because he's been given authority over all things. But in these early parts of Matthew's gospel, the term the kingdom of heaven, I think it's a, a little more defined. It's less broad than the king who is a king of everything. Now, I'm leaning on Don Carson here, who, who suggests that the kingdom of heaven And eternal life, they're kind of similar themes, similar terms. And Carson helps us to see that by looking at Mark, another gospel, and particularly chapter 9 of Mark. I think it's really useful. So could you come with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9? It's on page 1,573 of your Black Bibles. And I want us to start reading at verse 45. It's Mark chapter 9, verse 45. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. So I think these verses are so helpful for us because... See in verse 45 there, it's better to enter life, crippled it says. And then in verse 47, you'll you'll notice that verse 46 is missing by the way, but in verse 47 it says, it's better to enter the kingdom of God. And so eternal life on one hand, and the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God as it's called in Mark, are kind of being equated, they're held up as the same thing. Kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and eternal life. They are something that you can enter into, something that you can get. The kingdom of heaven then, in the early part of Matthew's gospel, is about life in the age to come. Life in the kingdom. And if we see it this way, if we see the kingdom of heaven this way, I think suddenly the importance of Matthew chapter 5 kind of escalates in our mind becomes so much more important for us today. Because the Sermon on the Mount, then, that these words are part of, are instructions to those who are part of Jesus' family, those who want to be in his kingdom. It's an instruction on what life in the kingdom will be like, and by its implication, how we as those who will one day dwell in that kingdom should start to live Today. The Sermon on the Mount, then, outlines the characteristics and the attitudes, the desires and the ethic, the principles of the Christian disciple. And I want you to note that it stands in contrast, stark contrast, I think, to the ways of the world, to all that's happening around us. If we follow these instructions, it means that we will be different. It means that we'll have a set of different cares and a set of different concerns and that we'll be motivated by different things. Over the next three weeks, as I said, we're going to be slowing down as a church and taking our time to carefully work through these 12 verses of chapter 5. We're going to be taking our time because they help us to understand, I think, the characteristics of those who follow in Jesus' footsteps. What should Jesus' disciples be like? I think this is what these verses outline. And as you look down at these verses, you can't help but see that word blessed or blessed, depending on how you pronounce it. I want you to think of someone this morning who you think of as blessed. Who do you think of when you think of someone who's blessed? And what makes them that way? Why would you call that person blessed? Perhaps they have that fancy car. Maybe they've got the house with all the trimmings. Maybe they go on all those wonderful overseas holidays. Perhaps they've got that very attractive partner. What is it that makes them blessed? You probably don't think of it, them as being blessed because they're meek or that they mourn or that they're poor. So how then does this passage that Heather just read to us work. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Maybe one answer to that question is that we, we understand the word "bless." wrong. We don't know what it means. But the very best translation, I think, that we can come up with to what this original word that's translated as blessed here might mean is is Fortunate. Most fortunate, then, are the poor in spirit. So what do you think this all means? How are we to understand these passages? Well, let's get into the text to try and understand. Let's um, look uh, with me at verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I translated before, most fortunate are the poor in spirit. What do you think that means? And how are we to make sense of these words? Because at the first glance, it seems pretty confusing, doesn't it? The mention of poor, I think, probably draws our mind to those who are financially less well-off. So then, is Jesus saying that we should aspire to not be able to pay our bills? Should we aspire to live in poverty so that we can enter into the kingdom of heaven? But it's not saying blessed are those who are financially poor, is it? Rather, blessed are the poor in spirit. So does that mean that we should be kind of ignoring the spiritual realm? Is that what it means, uh, such that we might inherit the kingdom of heaven? I think if we're to understand this passage, we need to go back to Isaiah. Matthew has Isaiah on his mind, doesn't he? We know that because he's just quoted from Isaiah in chapter 3. Back in Isaiah 62, God speaking through Isaiah says this, He says, these are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. And from chapter 61, this time Isaiah himself speaking says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And here's the clue to how I think we're to understand Matthew chapter 5. The poor in Isaiah are those who acknowledge their own spiritual bankruptcy. Those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy. Some of you might remember looking at the book of Isaiah as a church a few months ago. Remember, in Isaiah, we see the destruction of more and more of the kingdom of Israel as the book progresses. Remember, firstly, the northern kingdom is destroyed, and then the southern kingdom shrinks to just being Jerusalem, and then even that falls. And all that remains is that faithful remnant. That remnant, that faithful remnant, they are dependent on God and they are called poor. They know that they are spiritually destitute without God. They're the other ones who have not turned their backs on Him. And in Uzziah, they are also economically poor because they've been marginalized by the rest of society and consequently they're powerless and they they have no say in things. And that makes them even more dependent on God. These are the ones who are poor of spirit. And so being poor of spirit it doesn't necessarily mean that we're economically poor, although you may well be that way rather it means that you would recognize the lack of spiritual resources that you have to enter the kingdom of God on your own. And the result is that you depend completely and solely on God. You depend on him to forgive you, to reconcile you, to redeem you, knowing that nothing you have ever done is of any consequence as far as entering the kingdom of God goes. Remember the story of a previous pastor of mine illustrating this he He spoke about a guy called William Carey. He was the father of modern missions. He took his family to India to proclaim the gospel there. william Carey's life was one of just untold hardship. Wife after wife and child after child died in his quest to bring the gospel to India. If ever there was a person who could take pride. In their work for God, it was William Carey. And you yeah, have a look at this picture. I don't know if Chris can put it up on the screen for us. Um, Chris, do you want to uh, flick the picture of the gravestone up on the screen for me? This is William Carey's gravestone, the guy who started the modern movement of missions. He took his family to India. He says this on his gravestone, A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, into thy kind arms I fall. See, if ever you could earn your way into the kingdom of heaven, surely it's people like William Carey who would have done that. And yet he sees himself and had etched on his tombstone a poor and helpless worm utterly dependent on the mercy of God. See, that I think is what it means to be poor in spirit. It's about depending wholly and solely on God. And that's a value of those who belong in the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to depend on God. Well, let's move on, shall we? Verse 4 of uh, Matthew chapter 5 says this. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This, like the last beatitude, kind of seems upside down when we first read it, doesn't it? What does blessing have to do with mourning? Surely, it's those who don't have cause to mourn who are Really the happy ones, or really the fortunate ones. Has Jesus just got it it wrong at this point? I mean, I've got Facebook on my phone, and I've seen plenty of wedding photos, and plenty of holiday photos, or plenty of engagement photos. I've got one on the screen as well behind me. Or even just birthdays that are captioned with that hashtag, blessed. Never seen, I don't think. A Facebook photo of a funeral with the hashtag blessed. So what can Jesus possibly mean then when he says blessed are those who mourn? Well, I think the answer again is found in the book of Isaiah. And I'd love you to come to Isaiah with me this time. Come with me to Isaiah chapter 61. It's on page 1159. Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to read from verse 1 and I'm going to read a few verses from chapter 61, so if you can turn there, I'd love you to do so. Isaiah chapter 61 on page 1,159. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Did you see the the language of mourning there in verses 2 and verses 3? See, in Isaiah... Isaiah is looking forward to a time when the exile of Israel will end. Exile, of course, has with it an intense feeling of sadness that comes from the loss of their national identity. But remember that in exile, the people are in exile as a result of their corporate sin. Exile is God's judgment. And therefore, it was a source of anguish and pain the sin and the brokenness of their relationship with God and their loss of a place to call home results in mourning, and appropriately so. And so within this context then, it seems that the mourning that's on view in Matthew is in part a response to the way in which the world is, broken and suffering, experiencing the consequences of sin. What does that mean then for a disciple of Jesus today? What does it mean for us? Well, in our world today, in our context, we're not in exile in Babylon, are we? But we don't have to look far in our world to see things that might cause us to mourn. Firstly, I think we should mourn the brokenness of the world in which we live today. We should mourn the sinfulness in the world. We should mourn the corruption, the integrity, the cruelty, the hurt, the pain, sickness, destruction. All these things are worthy of us to mourn, aren't they? They're things of great sadness. I wonder if you ever spent much time mourning the broken state of the world in which we live. Secondly, those who know Jesus, those who love him as king, as his disciples, I think we should mourn when people who we know and love decide to reject Jesus as King. If we know how good our God is and what he's done for us, and if we know of the judgment that is to come, how could we not mourn when people reject Jesus as King? And thirdly, I think we should, re- we should mourn our own sinfulness. Some of us probably do this too often, but I think many of us may have become blasé to sin in our own lives. I remember when I was a university student studying the book of Romans with other Christians who were on campus. We went away on a camp to look at this book. I can remember seeing tears rolling down people's faces as they reflected on how hopelessly sinful their own lives were. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. Do you ever take time to mourn your own sinfulness? Psalm 51 was written by King David after the prophet Nathan rebuked him over his adultery with Bathsheba. I want you to listen to these words from Psalm 51. This is what David says. He says, Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So I think that's what it looks like to mourn over your sinfulness. It's about having a contrite heart. It's about seeing sin as repugnant. Having a contrite heart marks out our repentance as being authentic before God. It's worth asking the question, I think, when was the last time you mourned over your own sinfulness? Each week we gather here as a church and we together confess our sins corporately. But when was the last time you were really distressed by sinfulness? And when did that confession lead to sorrow? True repentance, I think, makes no excuses and it offers No rationalizations. It just grieves for sin. And it's marked by a contrite and broken heart. And it reminds us at the end of the day that we are utterly and solely dependent on God. That's a value of those who are part of the kingdom. Before I move on from morning, I just want to necessarily point out that mourning is not the end point for Jesus' disciples. Sure, it should be a value of those of us who are kingdom people. But we also need to remember, don't we, that Jesus has paid sin's ransom. That's our present day reality. Here and now, it's not just a future promise. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, we're cleansed from our sins. We're pure and blameless in God's sight. We're without stain or wrinkle or blemish, the Bible tells us. And while we, we should, I think, grieve over our own sinfulness, we know that the current reality is that we are washed clean and that we stand before God blameless because of Jesus' work. Today you can stand, you can stand assured. Your sins are remembered by God no more. Of course, there's also a future element to this as well, isn't there? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be, in the future, will be comforted. And there's an even greater sense of comfort that's provided in the new age. Here is the great promise: A time is coming when God will wipe away every tear and death itself will pass away. I think many of you will know these words, but just let me remind you of them from Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. There's a clear implication here, isn't there? While we still live in the old order of things, there will still be crying and there will still be tears and pain. But the great promise is that in the new age, God will wipe away every tear and there will be no death. There will be no mourning, no crying, and no pain. It's perhaps helpful then to see these verses as saying that those who love Jesus, those who follow in his ways, indeed, those who he calls blessed, while it's right and proper now to mourn, especially if that leads to repentance, we need not be in mourning forever because Jesus is and will right the wrongs in this world. That's what it means to be part of his kingdom. Well, let's move on to the next verse. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I Meekness this isn't a term we use very often, is it? I think that's probably because few of us kind of understand what it actually means. Let me give you an example of this. If I was to call Peter, sitting down the front here, if I was to say Peter is a great example of a meek person, am I trying to build him up by saying that or am I actually putting him down? I wonder what you think. I don't think we get a, we don't have a good sense of this word, meekness, do we? We often confuse meekness with weakness. So what does meekness mean? Well, let me give you Don Carson's definition of meekness. He says, Meekness is a controlled desire to see others' interests advance ahead of one's own. Meekness is about seeing others' interests advance ahead of one's own. That's kind of countercultural in our world today, isn't it? See, so much of our world today is about grab what you can now, despite what it costs those around you. Now think about it, a, a lot of what's wrong in our world is probably due to a lack of meekness. So it seems that in our world one person gets rich at the cost of ruin and expense of many others. There are so many things in our world that will be different if others put others' interests ahead of their own. And when you see meekness in action, it's a really great thing, I think, I When I worked as an engineer, I had a boss who I think just kind of fit Carson's description of meekness really well. He would consistently talk up his staff and downplay his own role in the success of our particular part of the business. He would look after his staff's well-being and their promotion ahead of his own. And subsequently, that would cost him at times. His staff went to the very best conferences. They got all the kind of conference junkets that you used to get. They got to travel overseas while he stayed home. Speaking of his followers, Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth. See, meekness here is shown by Jesus to be something to be treasured. It's a kingdom value. And the wonderful thing is that those who put others' interests ahead of their own, well, they one day will inherit the whole earth what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven, doesn't it? It might cost now, but in the kingdom of heaven you will be lacking nothing. Those who are in will one day inherit the new earth and the new heavens. If we meet today, we're going to have to depend on God, aren't we? If we put the interests of others ahead of our own, we'll need to depend on God that he will still provide. Our world tells us, grab it while you can. Jesus says, no, the meek will inherit the kingdom. In the kingdom, we'll all be like Jesus. Wrongs will be put right. Mourning will turn into triumph. The poor in spirit will be vindicated and lifted up. Kingdom of heaven, Jesus goes on to tell us in the Gospels, is a treasure worth seeking. I want to see this morning that it is there for those who depend on him. Let me pray. Gracious and loving Father, we thank you that you've promised to wipe away every tear. Thank you that you've promised to heal the hurt and pain and to restore this broken world while we wait for your kingdom to come. Please, through your spirit, work in us. Help us to have hearts that are contrite. Help us to be marked as those who have authentic repentance. We are by nature objects of wrath, but you, through the work of your Son, have made us holy and blameless. We thank you that we are most fortunate because of that. We pray these things trusting in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.